We've been working our way through the book of John, and we're up to the, uh, the second part of chapter 7 here. Dave Hammond, who was an intern with us years ago, he's now the pastor at uh, Three Crosses Church, told me once how uh, when he was driving back from Coeur d'Alene, he noticed this billboard. It's a billboard that's always there. It was connected to a bookstore. And uh, it always usually has a saying on it, a, a verse or, or some encouraging Christian saying. And so he'd always look for it to see what it said. I think it's still there, although I think the bookstore's closed. And he said it was near Christmas. And he said what the billboard said on it was this. Go search, and when you have found him, come and tell me that I may come and worship as well. He thought, well, that's great. That's encouraging. But if you look up that, that passage, it's Matthew Two eight. You know who says that? It's Herod who says that <laughs> when he's trying to trick the wise men into bringing Jesus so he can kill him. Um, so unless that person intended to try to murder Jesus, I think that they kind of said the opposite of what they were trying to say because they, they forgot the context. And I bring that up because when it, it, it comes to understanding something, you need to, you need to know the context, and that's very important in our passage today. Uh, earlier, I mean, two weeks ago, when we looked at the first half of this, uh, of this passage, um, we noted that it was chalked full of various opinions about Jesus. Uh, some people thought he was a good teacher. Some people thought he was a prophet. He had come down to Jerusalem, and, and they're all speculating. Some thought he was a fame seeker. Some thought maybe he's the Christ. But as we looked at each one of those, we didn't really consider much the context of the scene, which was okay for that first section because we were kind of considering those as kind of universal ways that people judge Jesus and and thinking about ourselves. But as we come into the second part of this passage, it's very important that we understand exactly what's going on here kind of the historical context. You see, all this dialogue and action was taking place during a, a very special event called the Feast of Tabernacles, or of Tents. This feast was an annual harvest celebration. After all the harvest was gathered, and the Jews, the Jews would gather in Jerusalem for, for this Feast of Tents. It was a huge event. As a matter of fact, it's one of three festivals that was required for every Jewish male within 20 miles of Jerusalem. They had to be there, and of course they would bring their families. It was massive. Uh, And what was unique about this event is that everybody involved stayed in these makeshift shelters and tents. Even those who lived in Jerusalem didn't stay in their homes, they would go out in the yard or out in the street or in the back alley, and they would make a, a, a shelter, a tent, for their family to stay in for the whole week. And there were even these uh, rabbinical uh, codes for how they had to be built. They had to be very thin-walled, like a tent, so the light would come in, have holes in the ceiling so you could see the night sky. So you can imagine the scene. Tents everywhere, in the alleys, on the rooftops, maybe in the outer courts around the temple. People sort of camping together with old friends and family, singing around fires at night. 
been quite a celebration. But the reason they did this was for remembrance and for thanksgiving. It was a time to remember the days when their forefathers had sojourned in the, in the desert, living in tents. Tents that would get worn out and thin as they traveled and have probably holes in the top. And God, they were to remember how, how God at that time had tabernacled amongst them, how he had sustained them, providing with them bread from heaven and even water from a, from a miraculous rock, if you remember the story. And it was a time to thank him and to thank him for the present sustaining of the rains for the harvest. Now at the heart of this celebration was a, a daily ritual. Every morning a great throng would gather at the temple and they would follow the priests down to the pool of Shalom, Shalom, with branches in one hand and a citrus fruit in the other. And the priests would dip this giant golden pitcher into the water while the people chanted the words of Isaiah 12.3, which I had read earlier. These words say, the joy, With joy you shall draw water from the wells of salvation. And then they would follow the priest back up to the temple, making this chant, and he would pour the water out over the altar. You see, it was a, a ritual that while remembering the past... And the, and the water of provision would also cast their eyes forward to the future messianic age that Isaiah was predicting. An age when God would pour out his water of salvation for all to enjoy, divine sustenance and renewal for all. See, this is the scene. This is the context during which all this speculation about Jesus is happening. This is the backdrop to all their muttering. Is this a prophet? Where does he come from? Is he the Christ, the anointed king? And on the last day of the feast, this water ritual intensified. The people would again follow the priest down to the water. He would fill the, the golden pitcher with water. And then they followed him back up, chanting from Isaiah that psalm of water and salvation. And this time, as they entered the water gate of the temple, a trumpet would sound, and the priest would circle the altar seven times and then ascend the steps. And there would be this dramatic pause where he lifted up the pitcher, and the people would say, Lift it higher! And then he would pour the water out for one final time. And I want you to note that it's on this day, that last day of the feast, perhaps at that very moment, that Jesus stands up and directly addresses the crowd for the first time since he's arrived at the, at the feast. If you remember, he entered in quietly. He didn't go with his disciples. And he's been kind of elusive avoiding confrontation. But now, at this time, he stands up and look at verse 37. Look what he says. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and what did he do? He cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. What a moment. 
You see, when, when, we, when we understand this setting, we realize what Jesus is doing now. It seemed weird when you read it. Out of nowhere, he just shouts this out. But now we understand, what's he doing? He's hijacking the whole feast. That's what he's doing. Like he did at Passover when they had the Passover, the, 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 the Last Supper, I mean, and he took the Passover meal and he said, oh, by the way, this meal that remembers the sacrifice of the lamb on the, on the doorpost and the blood and the bread. No, that's me. My body's the bread. I'm the wine. This is about me. That's what he's doing in this moment. He's saying, this is me. The sustaining waters of your forefathers in the desert, me. The salvific waters predicted by the prophets to come that will bring sustenance for all, that's me. If you want to partake of such waters of salvation, you need to come to me. I'm sure at the moment the crowd was kind of stunned. Because the implications of what Jesus is saying here are massive. And that's what I want to do for the rest of the sermon is unpack three implications of Jesus shouting this out at this moment. Three claims he's actually making. And the first one is kingship. He is saying that he is indeed the Christ, the anointed king, their real king that they've been waiting for. You see, Isaiah 12, 3, that text that the Jews are chanting as they bring that water, that text about the waters of salvation, I had it read, right, Isaiah 12? But what did I have read before it? The context, Isaiah 11. And Isaiah 11 is all about the real king, the king who is the root of David, who will come and bring the waters of salvation. It talks about the Davidic king, the one with the spirit of the Lord resting on him, the one who has all understanding and wisdom, the one who will judge rightly, the one who wipes out all wickedness, the one who will bring in God's perfect kingdom of peace where the wolf dwells with the lamb and the child plays with the cobra and the whole earth is filled with the knowledge of the Lord. It's that king who will bring the waters of salvation promised in Isaiah 12, 3. It's that king who opened the floodgates of this joyous water. Jesus' claim at this moment to be this water is a claim to be the promised Davidic king, their real king. And, and, and this claim, we should note, answers all the speculations in the text Look at the speculations. Look at verse 31 again. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ, that's the king, the anointed king, appears, who will do more signs than this man has done? Will he do more signs than this man? The answer is no, he, he must be. Verse uh, 41. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? They think he's only from Galilee, he's from Bethlehem. But is, is this the Christ? Look at verse 26 of the text. And here he is speaking openly, and they said nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ, the King? Jesus is answering it in this moment. Yes. Yes. I bring the living waters. I am the Christ, the anointed King. They know that's what he's saying. 
But the reality of, of him being their real king is, is not the only thing implied here by his claim to be the living water. Jesus is equally implying something else, and that is that he is life. He's real life. He's the real king who brings God's real life. As I mentioned earlier, this water ritual that he's claiming to fulfill in himself is rooted all the way back to the days when their forefathers, these, uh, uh, the forefathers of these Jews, were wandering in the desert and dying of thirst. They were literally dying of thirst, and they cried out to Moses, do something. And Moses, upon God's command, struck a rock. If you read the story, you realize it must be a boulder, because it's out of it it says, God, by his grace, sends a river of water, a river of water that, that quenches the thirst of all the people of Israel and their cattle. And it's just flowing from this boulder. And they, and they drank of the water, and they were restored and, and replenished. They were physically renewed. They were given life. Think of that moment. If you've ever been truly thirsty, you know, truly thirsty, dehydrated to the, the point of suffering, thirsty to the point of being on the edge of death, then you would know how this would feel as they drank that water in and lived. I don't think most of us know this, right? We, we got water in our taps and cold water coming out of our refrigerators. But, but the people listening to Jesus here, they, they were desert dwellers. They still live that way. I went up to Israel. You could, it's desert. You realize, man, if they don't get water, not going to last long. They know what it is to live on the edge of dehydration, these people that Jesus is speaking to, the edge of death. They know that water is life. So Jesus is saying, I will be your life. Now, Jesus, picking up on this prophetic promise of salvation of the waters, is, of course, making a parallel at a deeper level than just physical, isn't he? Than just physical life. Like almost all the things that he, ways he speaks and the miracles he does, there's, there's something deeper. He's talking about it. And look at, look at verse 38. This is where we see it here. Excuse me, I've got to flip over to 38. In the wrong chapter. He says this, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture says, out of his heart will flow livers, uh, rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. The living water he offers is, is spiritual. It brings real life beyond, beyond the physical life. It brings real life to their parched souls. Life that, that begins now, but it will be sustained into eternity. It's meant to quench, in a sense, their, their real thirst, their deepest thirst. Because it, it brings real life beyond the physical, the life of God that keeps going. The life that will fill them, the life they need. See, if you're not a Christian this morning, you need to understand that the Bible assumes 
that we are more than physical, physical, biological beings, but that we're spiritual beings. And just as our bodies need water to live, our souls need spiritual sustenance that only comes from God, our creator, from knowing him and relating to him, from being connected to him. Only the maker of our souls can quench them and give us life, full, eternal life. But the Bible tells us that our sinfulness has cut us off from God. It's brought death. Our souls have been cut off from what we need in our God. This is why Jesus says to the crowd in verse 28 that they do not know God. Did you see that? He says, I do. I come from him, but you don't. He says it again in verse 33. Look at it with me. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer And then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. Jesus says, I'm going to the Father. And and, and note how he says that he is with the Father presently. Where I am, you cannot come. It's present tense. He is in relationship to the Father. He's going to be with the Father, and he says, you can't get there. They can't come to the Father. And the Bible says it's the same for every single one of us as sinners. That's all of us. We're cut off from God, our very life source, like being cut off from water in the desert. You shrivel and you die. Our souls are desperately thirsty. And Jesus speaks into this situation and says to Anyone, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to the living water. Let him come and drink me. I will give you life, real life. And let me just say, Jesus goes on to make good on his claim, doesn't he? Look at his explanation at verse 39 again. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. This life-giving Spirit that he promises will come when Jesus is glorified. And do you know when Jesus is glorified in this book? At the cross. That's where he's lifted up to glory. As 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 he takes the sins of the world, our sins, and our death on his behalf. But the grave couldn't hold him, and he rose to the Father in glory. And at that moment, what does the Bible tell us? He sends out his spirit to all who thirst for real life. You see, in the desert, that rock was smitten. It was struck so that water would pour forth. And save the people. And Jesus was struck for us at the cross. That was his glory. He pours forth the water of salvation now to all who will come. He is God's real king who conquered even death, obtaining real life. 
And consequently, what he says here, the offer he makes here, is a real offer. Verse 37, again, on that last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Friends, that's a real offer. But I want us to notice a few things about it. This real offer, first of all, involves a, a real condition. Do you see the if? If anyone thirsts. In one sense, we're all thirsty. But despite that, I think that we uh, quite often don't recognize this thirst. We feel that something is wrong, that something is missing, what we're in, we're, but we're in denial of what it really is. We often feel this inner emptiness in our souls, a yearning for more that is never satisfied, and it's frustrating, and it feels hopeless. But instead of recognizing our spiritual thirst before God and, and turning to Him, we, we respond in, in other ways. I think, first of all, sometimes people respond just by kind of going dark. They kind of respond in desperation. They, they feel that. There's nothing they can do about it, so they, they just turn away and, and, and turn to addictions and vices to fill that void. They can get a cynical kind of apathy. Life sucks, and then you die. That's all there is to it. They can turn to suicide. I just give up. They can turn to kind of an ugly stoicism that says, I... I just stick it out, but I'm angry. I think that's where some people go. These are the people I think that are, are kind of honest that that thirst is there, but they don't know what to do. We tend to label these people unhealthy, right? They're not dealing with life well. But the truth is they're, they're honest. And then there's the healthy people, right? Who deal with, with life well. <laughs> What do we do with our empty, parched souls? Well, we just distract ourselves to death, right? We just avoid in, in that, 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 that all-popular pursuit of escapism. We ignore the emptiness. We just drink in something, anything, to fill the empty void in our souls, to distract us at least for a while. Sometimes we escape into the pursuit of uh, our careers and and stuff, finding that next bit of satisfaction we need to tide us over in a, you know, promotion or bonus or the material wealth that comes with it that we can, you know, buy things with, cars and house additions. And of course, it's never enough. Our careers eventually wane. They, they eventually come to an end. And all the stuff gets old and outdated and obsolete in concert with our lives, just breaking down. And in those quiet moments, we know it's all empty. Some people escape into the relentless pursuit of experiences. Maybe it's travel. They pour themselves into, you know, seeing the world. Uh, always reaching 
researching and planning the next trip and then going on the trip and then documenting the trip and then planning the new trip. Many young people today are putting off having kids and buying homes, so they're free to travel. They're even trying to get the jobs online, right, so they can be digital nomads. They'll fill their souls with exotic locations and new cultural experiences and all the flavors of the world's cuisines. The problem is, again, it's never enough. And where you go, there you are. You can't escape yourself and you can't escape the thirst. And for some, it's the endless pursuit of romantic relationships. The thrill of the hunt, the high of the honeymoon stage, until you break up and you go on the hunt, and then on the honeymoon stage again, traveling from one relationship to the next, to the next, until the high wears off. And you find yourself staring at another empty soul who has nothing to offer you except their emptiness. That's the woman at the well, by the way. Jesus says, bring your husband. I don't have a husband. Oh, yeah, you've had five, and the man you're with now you're just living with. Trying to fill that thirst. And Jesus, what does he offer her? The living water. The living water himself. And for many, I think for most of us, we just escape into the endless pursuit of shallow entertainment. Movies and sports and binge-watching TV shows. We just distract ourselves with these digital, voyeuristic and vicarious experiences. And they may be good things in themselves, right? I mean, what's wrong with enjoying sports or watching that cooking show or flea market flip, all 14 seasons? When are they going to make more? nothing wrong with those, but they cannot quench my soul's thirst. And the problem is with all the tech today, we can fill every single second with shallow distractors. Just scrolling your life away 30 seconds at a time. I like to make fun of my kids for this when they're just scrolling along on their phones until I pick up my phone and I'm like, hey, this is pretty funny. Check this out. Just fill the space. So that we never have those quiet moments, right? To wrestle with our real thirst. Just to be quiet. You want to honestly engage with the thirst of your soul? Take a fast from screens. See how you do. You see, the tragedy of all the escapist solutions is that they're just junk food for our soul when we need the living water. They give us a momentary, shallow sense of fullness that just goes away, that's not real. But in doing that, they can keep us from recognizing our true thirst. So that when confronted with Jesus, God's very living water, we don't, we're not even sure we need him. We, we, we hear about Jesus, and we, we may be curious, like many in this crowd, disputing where he's from, speculating about his miracles, 
about his authority, muttering under the breath. Could he be a prophet? Maybe he is the Christ. We may even be captivated by Jesus. Do you notice that with the temple officers here? They're sent to arrest Jesus. Did you see that? Look at verse uh, 45. The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? Why didn't they arrest Jesus and bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? They're captivated, but it's not really enough. They find his teaching amazing. I'm always amazed by people that will engage with me about Jesus. They, they love to read books about him. They love to watch you know, Discovery Channel documentaries about Jesus. They'll come along, they'll listen to sermons. But it's all right here. They're fascinated with him like they're fascinated with Muhammad or Buddha or something like that. There's no real thirst. You see, Jesus in the midst of all the speculation that is going on at the feast, doesn't really engage with it. Did you notice that? You want him to explain to him, look, I'm not from Galilee, I'm from Bethlehem, don't you know? You want him to answer the Pharisees' questions. You want him to stand up and do miracles. But instead, he just asks, who's thirsty? If anyone is thirsty. That's shocking to the Jews right there. Not just the religious people, not the Jews. Is anyone? If anyone is thirsty, if anyone here is willing to recognize and admit their deepest need and truly desire to have it filled, come to me and drink. See, it's not just, an, it's not just a, 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 a conditional offer on that thirst. It's relational. It's got a real condition, but it's about a real relationship. Jesus doesn't say, come to me and I'll I'll give you this special beverage, this magic hydration pill. He says, come to me and drink. It's a call into personal relationship. Note that the words believe and drink are kind of interchangeable in verses 37 and 38. He says, you can believe in me, you can drink me. Either way, you get the water of life. I was, when I was thinking about this, I realized that when you drink something, you've kind of committed, haven't you? You can sniff it, you can observe it, twirl it around a little, stick your finger in there. But once you drink, you've taken a step over the line, you've taken it in fully. That's what Jesus is saying. Take me in, all that I am, your king, your life, your salvation. It's not an easy commitment. Drinking may cost you. Look at Nicodemus, the end of our chapter. Did you notice that? Nicodemus is back, verse 50. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, right? He'd come and checked him out. And who was one of them, the Pharisees, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? He he wants to taste. They replied, "Are Are you from Galilee too? 
Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. He wants to partake. But they call him a Galilean, which is basically a narrow-minded fundamentalist hick. Drinking can cost, but look at the benefits. Verse 38, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. That's not a temporary fix to your thirst. You're so full, it just flows out of you. So I guess the question for all of us is, are we thirsty? Are you thirsty? Or are you trying to just escape and ignore your parched soul with distractions? If you think that maybe you are, this text is calling you. Jesus is saying, anyone, come to me. Jesus will come and fill your soul with life if you come to him. And if you want to drink of him this morning, pray with me now. Let's pray. Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I need your, your cleansing, your forgiveness, your life. Thank you for dying in my place, for taking my, my death. Please save me. Restore me. Revive my soul. That your life may, may come into me and overflow out of me, Lord. I come to you. I believe. Amen.